Let us pray. Heavenly Father Yahweh, thank you for this day. Thank you for the strength that remains in our members. Thank you for those aged and those hurting with us who are a testament to the fight is not over. It's easy to lay down, but to continue, Father, in what you've given us, that is the testament and that is the struggle. And may they be a story that lives within us even when our days do come, whether it be in peace or may it be as a time when the Apostle Paul himself said, you have yet to suffer to the point of blood. Things that we don't know in this land of peace quite yet. But Father, let us not waver in our dedication to you, to call upon your name, and to even to look forward, and maybe possibly, as Stephen, he saw your son at your right-hand side. I pray a blessing over my brethren who come to deliver the message today. In Yahshua's name. Amen. Brother Ryan. Getting ready for my message. Um, I was worried I wasn't going to have enough content, so I started writing it. Next thing you know, I'm now worried that uh, I'm going to go way over. So Jose promised me that um, he'll shorten his. But anyway. You know, the most contested piece of real estate in the world sits on 225 acres. Just 225 acres. It has four quarters. It's been attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. It's been besieged 23 times. Countless souls have perished behind its walls. And it's still known today as the city of peace. Yerushalayim. This name is believed to be interpreted as a combination of Yireh, which in Hebrew means he will see to it, and Shalem, which is the city of the king Melchizedek. Shalem is derived from the Hebrew Shalom, which means peace and goes back to the ancient territory of Salem, where Melchizedek dwelled. The ending Ayim in Hebrew dictates a plural meaning, which leads to speculation that the name refers to the two hills on which the city of David, or Zion, sat. Since the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple under the Babylonians, Jerusalem has always been in the thoughts and prayers of Jews throughout history. Psalms 137 expresses the love and loss Jews have had after their exile to Babylon. Jews from their youth have a love for Jerusalem, and this remains to this very day. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, they said. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Yahweh while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. My tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. The kingdom of Israel, both the northern and the southern tribes, have gone through a roller coaster ride of conquests and captivities. All of this has one common thread, disobedience to Yahweh. 
Yahweh used the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Romans to work out his punishment of the people and fulfill his prophetic writings. Daniel chapter 2 is a good prophetic study, and I urge you to, uh, to study that sometime, the successive uh, empires that uh, punished Judah throughout the centuries. After Titus utterly destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was said so thoroughly and devastatingly that the Romans even removed every tree for miles to stop the rain. It is well known that if you remove trees from areas, rainfall diminishes. The Romans knew this and used it for hundreds of years afterwards. It would have uh, affected the land. The Romans completely uprooted the temple from its foundations and by doing so effectively eliminated the symbolic center of Judaism and Jewish identity to the land. We still see that today. The account of the ruthlessness the Jews endured is written down by Jewish historian Flavius Josephus in the Jewish War. He said the rebels shortly after attacked the Romans again and a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right up to the temple itself. Then one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and with no dread of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side. To the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary, as the flames shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength, for the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was no exhortation or threat, could now restrain the impensity for passion, was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions, Others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos, died as miserably as, they, as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher above the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers and the fire could not be checked, he entered the building with his generals and looked at the holy place of the sanctuary and all its furnishings, which exceeded by far the accounts current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendor, repute, in our own, as the flames had not yet penetrated to the inner sanctum, but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still time to save the structure. Isn't that interesting? He ran out, and by personal appeals, he endeavored to persuade his men to put out the fire, instructing Labarlius, a centurion of his bodyguard of lancers, to club any man, any of the men who displayed, who disobeyed his orders. But the respect for Caesar and their fear of the centurion staff who was trying to check them were overpowered by their rage, their, destita their destation of the Jews, and an utterly uncontrolled lust for battle. Most of them were spurred on, moreover, by the expectation of loot, convinced that the inner 
was full of money and dazzled by observing that everything around them was made of gold. But they were forestalled by one of those who had entered into the building and who, when Caesar dashed out to restrain the troops, pushed a firebrand in the darkness into the hinges of the gate. Then when the flames suddenly shot up from the interior, Caesar and his generals withdrew, and no one was left to prevent those outside from kindling the blaze. Thus, in defiance of Caesar's wishes, the temple was set on fire. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people were caught by them, were slaughtered. There was no pity for any age, no regard was occurred rank. Children and old men, laymen, priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze, and the noise nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. There were the war cries of the Roman legions that they swept onwards in mass, the yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword, the panic of the people who cut off above, fled into the arms of the enemy, and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries of the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below. And now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger, when they beheld the temple on fire, found strength once more to lament and wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din, but more horrifying than the din were the sufferings. The temple mount everywhere, enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. A horrific sight. I don't think we quite realize how important the temple was to Judah. This was their identity. This was everything to them. When it was annihilated, it just ripped their guts out. I mean, they didn't have a will to live. Philostratus, writing in the early years of the third century, reported that Titus refused to accept a wreath of victory, saying that the victory did not come through his own efforts, but that he had merely served as an instrument of divine wrath. Titus and his soldiers celebrated the victory upon their return to Rome, parading the menorah and the table of the bread of Yahweh's presence through the streets. Up until this parading, these items had only been seen by the high priests in the temple. So what you're seeing there, um, there were the priests in the temple, a lot of people didn't see it. It was hidden. These artifacts um, eventually were on display in Rome in a temple which was ironically called the Temple of Peace. After the Ostrogoths sacked Rome, these artifacts were lost in time. Many believe the Vatican has them. Some believe the Ostrogoths melted the gold down. This event is memorialized in the Arch of Titus in Rome, and you can see this today. This image here is on the side of the arch. Um, To this day, Jews refuse to walk through it. Josephus claims that 1.1 million people were killed during the siege, of which a majority were Jewish. After the Romans killed the armed and elderly people, 97,000 were enslaved and then brought to Rome. Josephus attributes this to the celebration of the Passover, which was the reason for the vast number of people present, resulting in such a massive death toll. The temple gold was used to fund the construction of the Colosseum, and Jewish slaves were forced to build it in Rome. 
Thousands of slaves were forced to become gladiators and eventually died in Roman arenas entertaining the people of Rome. And so was the sad end of Judah and Jerusalem. It wasn't until 1948 that Jews reclaimed their homeland. And once again, Israel is a major force in the Middle East. This This had to take place because Yahshua's return to the Mount of Olives was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah, who said, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. You can see that in Zechariah 12.10. For that to happen, the Jews have to come back to the land. There's a coming a time when we will see a new Jerusalem, a permanent Jerusalem, a true city of peace, not a city in pieces. I like to break Jerusalem down to three historic phases in time. This is my own rationale here. I got Melchizedek's Salem, David's Salem, and Yahshua's Salem. Melchizedek's Salem, who is this shadowy character known as Melchizedek? The name is composed from the two elements, Malek in Hebrew, which means king, and Sedek, which means righteousness. He is first mentioned in Genesis 14, starting at verse 13. You can turn there with me if you would. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Chedor Leomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of Elohim most high, and he, has, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by Elohim most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to Elohim most high, who delivered your armies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Barnes Notes describes the meeting of the king of Sodom and Melchizedek this way. An incident of the deepest interest here takes us by surprise. The connecting link in the narrative is obviously the place where the king of Sodom meets with Abram. The king's dale is plainly adjacent to the royal residence of Melchizedek, who therefore comes forth to greet, entertain the returning victor. (coughs) Excuse me. This prince is the king of Shalem. This is apparently an ancient name of Jerusalem, which is so designated in Psalm 76.8. The other Shalem, which lay in the vicinity of Shechem in Genesis 33.18, if this be a proper name, is far away from the Kingsdale and the town of Sodom. Jerusalem is convenient to these locations and and contains the element Shalem in its composition, as the name signifies foundation of peace, Shalom. Barnes Notes goes on to say regarding verse 18, and he blessed him. Here it comes out clearly that Melchizedek acts not only in a civil but a sacred capacity. He blesses Abram 
in the form of benediction employed, we have two parts, the former of which is strictly a blessing or asking of good things for the person in question. Blessed be Abram. It is the part of the father to bless the child of the patriarch or superior to bless the subject or inferior, and of the priest to bless the people, Hebrews 7.7. Now there is debate on who Melchizedek was. We know for sure he was a type of the Messiah, if not the Messiah himself. We see these items, bread and wine, placed on the table of the presence in the tabernacle in Exodus 25-29. Yahshua used them in Matthew 26-26. John says, if a man partakes of them, he shall live forever in John 6, 48 to 58. Interesting passage. It seems that not just Abraham's body was refreshed here, but his soul. Melchizedek and the Messiah are a type of each other, according to Hebrews 7, 11. Nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews. Could have been Paul. We know Paul studied under, under the, um, the uh, Gamaliel, the famous rabbi. So it says... Uh, if perfection could have been attained, this is in Hebrews 7.11, through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our master descended from Judah, and in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was meek and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced, but which we draw near to Elohim. And if it was not with an oath, others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when Elohim said to him, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. <clears throat> we know Melchizedek was a mediator between Yahweh and man. He represented Yahweh's mercy. Abraham tied the tenth to him. He used bread and wine. He was without father or mother and was like the son of Yahweh and a priest of the Most High Elohim. Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness, and Yahshua will be called in the millennium the king of righteousness. Melchizedek was a king, and Yahshua, of course, is a king. Please turn to Jeremiah 23.5. Jeremiah prophesies the coming role of Yahshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, to his new role as the king of righteousness, just like Melchizedek. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will rise up for David, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Verse 6 from the Masoretic text. And this his name by which he will be called, Yahweh our righteousness. Phonetic pronunciation of Yahshua's future name literally is Yahweh Tzidkanu, or Yah Tzidkanu. Remember, names have meaning. We've lost that in our culture. We like names because of the sounds that they, that they make. 
That's why uh, when you tell Christians the importance of Yahweh's name, they tell you it doesn't matter what we call them. That's because they are disconnected from the Hebraic roots of the faith. In Hebrew, names describe roles. And we can see Yahshua's new name, future tense, will describe his new role. Verse 7, So then the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when people will no longer say, As surely as Yahweh lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, As surely as Yahweh lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north, and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. The lost tribes of Israel who were said to be scattered all over the northern lands after the Assyrian captivity and assimilated in, their, in other countries will be united once again. And Jeremiah gives us evidence as to their location. We know they went north. Some believe that some of the remnants of these tribes became the Scythians. You can look at them in history. They were a rival to Rome. They were formed after the Assyrian captivity and actually are traced back to that region. Of course, we know that's where the northern tribes went. Today, today they are known as the Slavic Russians in the areas of Central and Eastern Europe. It seems, however, without a strong identity, though, these tribes were absorbed and assimilated into various countries and nations throughout history. More than likely, all of you probably have remnants of the tribes somewhere floating around your bloodline. Wouldn't surprise me at all. In a profound and, I believe, most amazing, I should have showed you this. This, was, uh, this is Yahshua's name here in Hebrew, Yahweh Sidkenu. In a profound and, I believe, the most amazing archaeological site ever found, and this is the point, the main point of my message, was found by my friend, Israeli archaeologist Eli Shukran, discovered what he believes to be the remnants of Melchizedek's temple in the city of David. You heard me correctly. Melchizedek, the first priest, possibly Yahshua, or at least a type, he found Melchizedek's temple in the city of David, Mount Zion, right near the Gihon Spring, which many of us believe to be the location of Solomon's temple because that was Zion. Do you realize the significance at all of this find? This is ground zero for the worship of Yahweh on planet Earth, and it still exists to this day. This predates the temples. This predates the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, at least the one that was created on Earth. This predates Moses. This predates Jacob. This is the start of the priesthood through Yahshua. This is also the location we read about regarding Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek. This would have happened here. Ellie found an olive press station, which was used for priestly anointing, as you can see there. He found blood channels cut into the floor for sacrifices, also nearby bones of clean animals for these sacrifices. He found remnants of an altar or a standing stone. Quick, quick uh, trivia, what's altar in Hebrew? Anybody know? Mike, you remember? Remember? It sounds like, uh, it sounds like my, uh, one of my, I want to raise their hand. Sounds like one of my teachers from high school, Ms. Bayak. Ms. Bayak? That's what it is. <laughs> anyway, it's just a joke. I thought Randy get it. <clears throat> but Ellie believes uh, this pillar stone found here in the city of David is just like the one described in Genesis 28, when Jacob had a dream in Bethel and a ladder reaching up to heaven. After the dream, Jacob said, how awesome is this place? 
This is none other than the house of Yahweh, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose up in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. This shows us that this is a significant location, and it's right in Zion, meters away from the Gihon Spring. There's another uh, image of it there. Strange symbols cut into the floor. Ellie believes these grooves are possibly for holding sacrificial stands, but it is a mystery. Are they religious symbols? No one knows. They are located right near the grain press. Here's an artist's rendering of the temple complex. This is what it would have looked like in Melchizedek's day. By the way, it's dated to that time. You can see here uh, a top recreation of the four-room temple complex. The room number two here is labeled Metzvah. The term Mitzvah was the act of the Kohanim, the priests, um, igniting the altar every morning when they used wood. It's really fascinating to think that right here in the city of David, in Jerusalem, the first temple ever constructed to Yahweh was used by none other than possibly Yahshua, or a type of him, whoever this shadowy individual is. Is it any coincidence that all the kings of Israel were anointed right here near the Gihon? Think about it for a second. First Kings one thirty eight talks about uh, Solomon. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Ketherites, the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. Remember, Yahshua came in on a donkey and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook at their noise. Right here, right in this area, was where uh, Solomon was anointed. You can see here the Gihon pool, just right up the hill is where Ellie found this. And what's amazing about this site is most people don't know about it. I mean, it's pretty much under lock and key. It's almost as if uh, they don't really want it out there. You'd think this would be like a major tourist destination in the city of David, but it's not. Um, you know, you get pretty much have to ask Ellie, and he's got the key to it. <clears throat> Um, I have to wonder if maybe, just maybe, this is just speculation on my part, what if the olive oil used in the temple was made right in this location on that olive press? Who knows? That's just, just something, I guess your mind kind of starts wandering when you think about possibilities. Well, let's get to part two, David's Salem. Jerusalem goes by several names in the Bible. Salem, Jebus, Zion, the city of David, they're all synonymous at some point in history, the Jebusite Canaanite tribe conquered this location and named it Jebus. No doubt important because of its valuable siphon spring, the Gihon. During the time of the conquest of Canaan, under Joshua, Jerusalem had remained in Jebusite control. Judah or Benjamin could not dislodge the Jebusites from the city. In Judges 1.8, it says the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Then you go to verse 19, it says, Yahweh was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron, 
was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjaminites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. Barden's notes makes this comment. The conclusion is that Jerusalem was only taken once, namely at the time here described, and that it was in the lifetime of Joshua, but that the children of Judah did not occupy it in sufficient force to prevent the return of the Jebusites, who gradually recovered complete possession. It's likely that in David's time, the Jebusites and Israelites probably coexisted with some sort of truce, in my opinion. Maybe the Jebusites uh, controlled, they obviously controlled the city, maybe the surrounding land in that area was controlled by Judah. Um, they, they lived together, so we don't really know. The Bible doesn't really let us know. I find it ironic that even to this day, however, it is a contested city. It's not completely controlled by Judah if you go there. Now, granted, the IDF, they control the main city, kind of. I mean, you know, a lot of it is it's split up into different uh, ethnic groups, and, you know, the four quarters. You got the Jewish, the Muslim quarter, Christian quarter, Armenian quarter. They all kind of get along, but they don't, you know. The city would have to fall, though, because remember, it was the inheritance to Benjamin. Joshua 18.20, these were the boundaries that marked out the inheritance of the clan of Benjamin on all sides. The tribe of Benjamin, according to its clans, had the following towns, Jericho, Beth, Hegelah, and Mech. I'll skip down to verse 25. Gibeon, Ramah, Baroth, Mitzpah, Kephirah, Mozah, Rakim, Erpil, Tarlah, Zelah, Heleth, the Jebusite city, it even names it, that is Jerusalem, Giba and Carith, 14 towns in their villages. Interesting, it says the Jebusite city, because it wasn't theirs yet. This was the inheritance of Benjamin for its clans. It wasn't until King David, 3,000 years ago, that this city was totally conquered completely from the Jebusites. David then established his capital there. The Megalim Institute, devoted to the uh, city of David's discoveries in um, Jerusalem, produced a great four-minute video that I would like you to watch regarding David's conquest of the city. Ellie Shukran discovered David's citadel, among other things, with uh, Professor Ronnie Reich. And they, they just amazing finds there. It, it blows me away when you go there and you walk through it. Um, but up until this time, these discoveries... Zion or the city of David, it was a mystery. They're finding so much information right now that's just amazing, that's just kind of letting us all into that the Bible, number one, is true. It's factual, but it's, it's exciting because of the things they may find in the future. But anyway, I'd like to start this video for you. If we could maybe dim the lights. About 3,000 years ago, David, son of Jesse, is crowned king of Israel. This is the beginning of the royal house of David. David decides that Jerusalem, positioned at the heart of the Israelite territory, will be the capital of his kingdom. But Jerusalem is a powerful and intimidating Canaanite city, and until David's time, no tribe has been able to conquer it. Now, once again... Confident of their fortifications, the Jebusites take up positions on the city walls. The young King David challenges the complacent enemy. 
He is determined. This time, Jerusalem must fall. אני עומד על המדרון המזרחי של עיר דוד. כאן, בשנת 1995, מצאו הארכיאולוגים פרופסור רוני רייך ואלי שוקרון שרידים של מגדל ענק שנבנה על ידי הכנענים לפני כ-4,000 שנה. האבנים האלה, שכל אחת מהן שוקלת מספר רב של טונות, הן חלק ממגדל עצום שנבנה ממש כאן, בסמוך למעיין הגיחון. The Jebusites mock David. They station blind and lame men on the city walls. The message is clear. The city is so strong that even the blind and the lame can easily defend it. David knows that in the past, he won't be able to get the city. Here he has to think outside the box. His head is already broken. He promises the esteemed position of head of the army to the soldier who dares to volunteer for this dangerous mission and succeeds. One man rises to the challenge, Joab ben Zeruya, a tough and daring soldier. But what is the mission? In his challenge, David uses two mysterious words, Veiga batzinor. What is this tzinor that David is referring to? Thousands of years later, a fascinating discovery was made, shedding light on the mysterious tzinor. In 1867, the archaeologist Captain Charles Warren crawled through a tunnel near the Gihon Spring. About 20 meters from the spring, Warren discovered a vertical shaft that rose to a height of 13 meters above his head. With great effort, Warren climbed to the top of the shaft, where, to his amazement, he discovered that the tunnel continued to rise steeply until it reached the city above. אורן הבין מיד שלפניו מפעל מים סודי שנבנה לפני אלפי שנים. התכנון היה מתוחכם ביותר. הכנענים ידעו שנקודת התורפה של איראן היא המעיין שנמצא מחוץ לחומות העיר. They built a great citadel around the spring and dug a tunnel down from the city above to the citadel surrounding the spring. He sends Joab ben Surya through this tunnel to infiltrate the city. After Job exits the tunnel, he runs down to the city gates. The Jubicide soldiers fail to notice him. Job reaches the city gates and opens them with great force. Before the Jubicites can grasp what has happened, David's soldiers burst through the gates and take the city by surprise. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. If you visit the city of David, lights please. If you visit the city of David today, you can literally walk through the Bible from the time of David and Solomon. If you need a good tour guide, I'd like to recommend uh, Brother in the Faith, uh, Congregation of Yahweh Jerusalem, uh, Don Esposito. He'd be glad to help. He has uh, lived in the land for over 20 years. 
and even works with the uh, Knesset. We have uh, a few videos on our website or on our YouTube page, which uh, we interviewed Don, and one we're standing up on the Mount of Olives looking down. That happens to be our most uh, organically viewed video. It's, I think it's over a million now that have seen that video. Let's get to the last one, Yahshua's Salem. Although Jerusalem has been a contested and conquered city for thousands of years, it will finally be conquered once and for all. When our King and Messiah, the Lamb of Yahweh, who reigns from the line of David, returns to the city Jerusalem, the city where he died for all mankind, the city where he sacrificed himself, his blood for our sins, and interceded with us, for us, like uh, Melchizedek interceded for Abraham, there will be no more contested land. As uh, Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 23, 5, from the Masoretic text, Hene yamim ba'im na'um Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch. Yamalek malek weheskil wehesa mispat utztika ba'aretz and shall reign a king and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Wa Yisrael yeshkun lebeta, and Israel will dwell in safety. It's amazing what's in store for all people. On that day, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And his city, Jerusalem, the most beautiful city ever built, on that day, he will be our Melech Zadik, our king of righteousness. Yad Sidkenu, Yahweh our righteousness. Revelation 21.9. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from Yahweh. It shone with the glory of Elohim, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates of the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because Yahweh Elohim Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Think about that for a second. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of Elohim gives it light, and the Lamb is its light or its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gate ever be shut, for there will be no light there. Night there, sorry. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jerusalem is an amazing city with an amazing future. Everything from Genesis to Revelation culminates in this one city. Psalms 122, I'd like to leave you with this. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the house of Yahweh. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. 
That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of Yahweh, to praise the name of Yahweh, according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of Yahweh, our Elohim, I will seek your prosperity. May we all pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Hallelujah.